welcome. <laughs> um, I was just thinking, hasn't it been such a great day? Um, celebrating our 11th birthday and giving thanks and hearing from God through prophecy this morning and sharing food together. Um, I feel like heaven might be a little bit like this. <laughs> Celebration and worship and thanksgiving and joy and community and a big feast. And I love that actually the Bible quite often describes heaven as a banquet. Um, Isaiah speaks about it like this from Isaiah 25. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wines, of rich food filled with marrow, of well-aged wines strained clear. And he will destroy on this mountain the shroud that is cast over all peoples, the sheep that spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. Then the Lord God will wipe away the tears from all the faces and the disgrace of his people he will take away from all the earth. For the Lord has spoken. It will be said on that day, Lo, this is our God. We have waited for him so that he might save us. This is the Lord for whom we have waited. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. So salvation, the age to come, when death is swallowed up and every tear is wiped away, is pictured as a great banquet feast that God prepares for his people. And then in the Gospels, Jesus tells quite a lot of kingdom parables that involve banquets or people having meals. And actually, the meal that we're going to be looking at tonight is in a lot of ways kind of like a foretaste of that future heavenly banquet. And I think it's, it's one of those times when God's just like orchestrated things to work together well, that the fact that we're looking at this particular meal as we celebrate our birthday and as we look back at the past 11 years and then look forward to the future. Because this particular meal has so much to say about our mission as a church and how we're equipped for that and about celebration and that ultimate future hope that we have to look forward to. But just before we get into that, I wanted to just give a very quick summary of what we looked at last time for those of us who weren't here or to refresh um, your memories. So Jesus was eating in a Pharisee's house when a woman showed up uninvited and began crying at his feet and washing them with her tears and drying them with her hair. And I'm sure you've all heard the story. And we were looking last time at the way that Jesus welcomed her and how salvation for her meant acceptance and welcome and being restored to community as well as forgiveness. And we saw how Simon the Pharisee was given the invitation to be similarly transformed and to see people and things in a new way with kingdom perspective and with grace and how that same invitation is held out to us. And the meal that we're looking at tonight kind of breaks the pattern of most of the meals in Luke in a couple of ways. It doesn't name specific individuals. And Jesus isn't actually sitting and eating with the people. He's more of a host than a, a guest. And there's no conflict or opposition um, directed towards him because of the way that he's eating. And I think all of those things are significant, and we'll get to them in time. But even though it's quite a different meal, we're going to treat it the same way. So just like last time, we're going to look at the story and focus especially on the characters or kind of character groups this time to see what we can learn from them. But first I'm going to read, if I, I didn't say, this is the feeding of the 5,000. <laughs> um, Luke chapter 9, reading from verse 10. On their return, the apostles told Jesus all they had done. He took them with him and withdrew privately to a city called Bethsaida. And when the crowds found out about it, they followed him and he welcomed them and spoke to them about the kingdom of God and healed those who needed to be cured. The day was drawing to a close, and the twelve came to him and said, Send the crowd away, so that they may go into the surrounding villages and countrysides 
to lodge and get provisions, for we're here in a deserted place. But he said to them, you give them something to eat. They said, we have no more than five loaves and two fish, unless we're to go and buy food for all these people, for there are about 5,000 men. And he said to the disciples, make them sit down in groups of about 50 each. And they did so and made them all sit down. And taking the loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and blessed and broke them and gave them to the disciples to set before the crowd. And all ate and were filled. And what was left over was gathered up, twelve baskets of broken pieces. I think that especially if we've grown up around the church, we can have heard that story so many times that it kind of loses its wonder a little bit. But seriously, can you imagine being there? 5,000 people all fed from what started as two fish and five bits of bread. So let's look first at the crowd who are fed and their experience. And they actually enter the story as uninvited guests, intruders into Jesus' private debrief with his disciples, kind of like the woman in the meal we looked at last time. But just like with her, Jesus welcomes them. He teaches them about God's kingdom and he shows them what it looks like both by welcoming them and by healing those who need healing. It always seems to be that way with Jesus, show and tell. And then it gets late, and the disciples decide it's time to get things moving. All these people need dinner and a bed for the night. They should go off and sort that out for themselves. And just like we saw at the last meal, Jesus takes what's a perfectly natural, understandable, seemingly appropriate response, and he turns it upside down. Instead of agreeing with them, he says, you feed them. And we'll look more closely at that later when we come to the disciples, but for now I just want to emphasize that that's exactly what happens. The crowd are fed. They don't have to go looking for their dinner. Jesus provides food for them, and not just enough for them not to be hungry, but food in abundance. After they've all eaten and are completely satisfied, there are 12 baskets of leftovers. This crowd are fed and provided for in the wilderness. I think there's definitely echoes here of the Exodus narrative and God's provision for his people as they wandered the wilderness. And the Hebrews series, anybody? (laughs) Like we've seen in the past couple of weeks, we're living in the wilderness now. But those of us who persevere are promised an eternal rest and a great feast. And I think that this feeding is another way that Jesus shows the crowd what the kingdom of God looks like. Right back at the start of the gospel, when Luke records Mary singing her prophetic song of praise, which speaks of what God has done in sending his son and bringing his kingdom, one of the things that she rejoices in is that he's filled the hungry with good things. And later when we come to the Beatitudes, in chapter 6, Jesus promises, Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you will be filled. Salvation and God's kingdom coming involves the hungry being fed. Just like we looked at last time, salvation is not just spiritual. It's very earthy and physical, and it matters for life now as well as for the age to come. I love that. (laughs) This life matters, this world matters, food matters, because it's part of God's good creation. One of my favorite authors is an Episcopalian priest called Robert Farrar Kaplan, and he has this incredible book called The Supper of the Lamb, in which he talks about earth and food like this. To be sure, God remains the greatest good. But for all that, the world is still good in itself. Indeed, since he does not need it, its whole reason for being must lie in its own goodness. He has no use for it, only delight. Just think what that means. 
We were not made in God's image for nothing. We have eyes which see what he sees, lips which praise what he praises, and mouths which, which relish things because he first pronounced them told good. The world is no disposable ladder to heaven. Earth is not convenient. It is good. It is by God's design our lawful love. Another toast then. And in my home group, we've been reading through John together. And last week, we looked at the wedding at Cana when Jesus turns water into really, really good wine. And just like our meal here, he is affirming the goodness of creation and food and drink. Um, Tim Chester puts it well. Food is a central ingredient in our experience of God's goodness, not merely an illustration of it. And then those 12 baskets of leftovers, the abundance. And I love that because it so much reflects who God is, doesn't it? He's a God of extravagance and abundance way beyond what we deserve or expect. And also that abundance is part of what points us forward to look beyond just this meal, to that hope of a future heavenly banquet. Throughout the Old Testament and the prophets, there's not just this expectation that there will be a messianic banquet, but that it will be characterized by abundance of food. Later in Isaiah, people are invited to come and buy wine and milk as much as they want without price. There's no limit on God's provision for them, and it's not dependent on anything they have. Jeremiah talks of priests being given their fill of fatness and people being fully satisfied with God's bounty. And Joel speaks about full threshing floors and vats overflowing with wine and oil, people eating in plenty and being satisfied. And Amos of the mountains and hills flowing with sweet wine. God doesn't do things by halves. He's a God of abundance. But for Luke's first readers and for the crowd themselves as they were fed, one of the most surprising things, as well, of course, is the abundant provision of food, would have been the fact that there wasn't any concern for Jewish purity. This desert wilderness wasn't really an appropriate place for a Jewish meal. And in a crowd of people that big, there were sure to be people who were unclean. The food probably hadn't been properly prepared. The tithes probably hadn't been paid on it. The way Jesus eats and the way he acts as the host of this meal turns the world upside down. That's what the kingdom does. And we thought quite a bit last time about the transformation of individuals and the offer and invitation to a new way of living and seeing that Jesus offers. But with this meal, the scope is much bigger. I think the individuals aren't named because it's not just the individuals, but actually culture itself that's transformed when it comes in contact with the kingdom. And those food purity laws aren't relevant anymore. They create barriers. They exclude people. And Jesus' way of eating and hosting a banquet is marked by radical inclusion. I said earlier that this meal is different from a lot of the others in Luke because there's no conflict or opposition connected to Jesus' unconventional eating habits. And that makes it like two other meals in the Gospel. The Last Supper and the meal on the road to Emmaus after Jesus' death and resurrection. And one New Testament scholar suggests that this is because these meals are a manifestation of a pure table fellowship now that foreshadows the joy, the abundance, and the peace of a table fellowship not yet. We're back to the now and not yet again. So here in this desert place, in the wilderness, for a moment, the crowd are given a glimpse of the fullness of the coming kingdom. 
And it is just a glimpse. These 5,000 men will be hungry again. But the baskets of leftovers, as well as being a mark of abundance, are like a promise of the hope that one day the feast will continue. And even as we share meals together now, as a church family, we get a glimpse of the coming kingdom. Tim Chester describes our meals as a proclamation and a demonstration of God's good news. So now what about the disciples? I said we'd come back to them. If we put ourselves in their shoes. At the start of the story, they've just come back from the mission that Jesus sent them out on at the start of chapter 9. Verse 1 says, Then Jesus called the twelve together and gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases. And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. And they come back full of excitement at all that they've seen and done. And he takes them away to debrief and to pray. And then their special time with him is interrupted by the crowds again. And they can deal with that as he teaches and heals. But when it gets to the end of the day, they're sure it's time for the crowds to leave. Imagine how they must feel when, Jesus, when they approach Jesus with this suggestion. And he says, you feed them. How? With what? They're tired and hungry themselves, and it's not like they've got money to spare. How could they possibly provide food for 5,000 people? I want us to think about two things here, the nature of the task and how it's accomplished. Jesus is, to an extent, handing over the role of host of the banquet to the disciples. They're given a part to play in bringing the kingdom and meeting the needs of those around them. And they've already had some experience of this as they were sent out by him earlier on. But this is different. They're incredibly daunted by the task in front of them. And on one level, their initial response is totally understandable. But I think in the context of the bigger story, there's a challenge. Their response is really one of disbelief and lack of faith. They don't imagine that Jesus is able to feed all these people. But if we think about what they must have experienced when they were sent out before, when Jesus explicitly told them not to take bread or money or even an extra tunic, and yet we can assume that all their needs were met as they went. And this is not to look down on the disciples at all, it's a challenge to us. How often do we have experienced God's provision in incredible ways in the past? Forget that and worry and complain and disbelieve. But then how is the task accomplished? What does Jesus do? How does he respond to their lack of faith? He doesn't just take over as they sit and watch. No, he actually doesn't have direct contact with the crowd at this point. He acts through the disciples. He enables them to carry out the task. They're the ones who seat the guests. They're the ones who hand the food around. They have the direct contact with the people. But they're able to meet their needs because of Jesus' provision and enabling. And the same applies to us. We're given a part to play in bringing the kingdom and meeting the needs of those around us, feeding the hungry. And here the the physical nature of salvation as well as the spiritual is important again. It reminds me of what James said. If a brother or sister is naked and lacks daily food and one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and eat your fill, and yet you do not supply their bodily needs, what good is that? God's kingdom coming means physical needs being met. And as a church, we are doing that, quite literally feeding the hungry through storehouse. But I'm sure all of us also know of so many other needs around us. Some of them would be physical needs, maybe hunger or sickness or poverty. (coughs) 
the refugee crisis, the millions of precious individuals around the world who are trapped in slavery. Maybe it's social needs, isolation, loneliness. Maybe they're emotional needs or spiritual ones. And we probably often feel like we're completely incapable and like we don't have the skills or the money or the people. But here to the disciples and to us today, Jesus says, what do you have? Offer that to me and let me use it for my glory. And through that, the disciples also come to see more of Jesus' true identity as Messiah and Lord. Um, we mentioned briefly earlier about the echoes of the Exodus narrative <coughs> in this wilderness setting and God's provision there. And Jesus is kind of almost like a new Moses. But it's more than that. If we read on just after um, this story, Jesus asks his disciples about his identity. Who do the crowds say I am? They answered, John the Baptist, others Elijah, and still others that one of the ancient prophets has arisen. And he said to them, but who do you say I am? Peter answered, the Messiah of God. After seeing Jesus feed the crowd, Peter realizes fully who Jesus really is. Is the same thing true for us? I think it is. We can know in our heads who Jesus is, his power and his strength and love and ability to provide for us. But it's really only when we experience it, when we step out in obedience to him and see him work and act on our behalf, where we feel incapable and do it anyway, trusting in his strength and provision, that we come to know in new ways, deep in the innermost part of our being, who he is. So where does that leave us as we look to the coming months and years as a church, as we prepare to turn that corner from community to vision casting? Well, there's a massive encouragement in the reminder of God's power and abundant provision. And there's a call to keep on meeting the physical needs around us, as we're doing with Storehouse. And as we do that, and as we cast vision for how that might grow and develop in the future, let's keep in mind his abundant provision. Let's create opportunities to come to know who he is in new ways, to make more, deeper connections with him by stepping out and following where he leads, even if we feel incapable. And let's carry on sharing meals together, partly simply because food is one of our Father's good gifts to us, but also because our shared meals embody and demonstrate something of his coming kingdom and that great feast that's waiting for us. And as we, and let's look forward to that great banquet in his presence when every tear is wiped away and death itself is swallowed up and we'll sit at his table and feast and worship forever. I'm just going to pray now and then we're going to worship for a bit and listen to God. Father God, I thank you so much that you are a God of abundance and extravagance. God, I thank you that you enable us to meet the needs around us, the ones that you have called us to. And so, Father God, we come before you now. Um, and as we look ahead to the future, um, we invite you to come in to that, that planning process. Um, and we trust in your abundance and your faithful provision. And God, we're so excited for that day when we get to feast and worship forever in your presence. And we're so grateful 
for opportunities to experience a taste of that here on earth. So Father God, we want to worship you now. Holy Spirit, we welcome you here. Would you come and speak? <clears throat> 